Everybody needs money. That's why they call it money. The best things in life are free. But you can give them to the birds and bees. I need From Fool Global Headquarters, this is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money. Thanks for being here. I'm your host, Chris Hill, and joining me in studio this week from Motley Fool Inside Value, Joe Mager, from Motley Fool Income Investor, James Early, and from Million Dollar Portfolio, Ron Gross. Good to see you guys. Woo! Happy Gobble Gobble. Day. Yes, we've, we, we've got... It's, it's, right off the bat. It is the one show of the year. Long-time listeners know this. It's the one show of the year where we actually have a sound effect. Uh, Thanksgiving weekend, Black Friday weekend, it gives us the chance to sort of step back from the news and uh, sort of look at stocks that we're thankful for. Uh, as Steve Roy, our man behind the glass, indicated with the sound effect. That's actually Steve, people don't realize. <laughs> That's not a sound effect. <laughs> uh, stocks that are turkeys. Um, but before we get into sort of the Thanksgiving theme stuff, Ron, I want to start with you. We're heading to the end of the year. We've, we've seen some interesting activity over the last couple of months where you look at mid-September, the market was kind of at a high, and it's, it's kind of come steadily down from that. As we head into the last month of the year, what is a stock-centric question that you have that, as an analyst, you're sort of wrestling with a little bit? I really want to understand what is next from Microsoft. I've got a, a big stake here, professionally, personally, and there's a lot going on here. Smartphones, tablets, PCs, Windows 8, a lot of unknowns. I'm going to be watching really closely. I have them on a short lease. The numbers tell me it's cheap, but there's a lot of uncertainty. Uh, I think I, just based on his body language, Joe Mager would <laughs> yeah. like a rebuttal. I was just trying to – I didn't want to say anything, Snarky. I mean, come on. <laughs> well, did you, come well, on. What did I say that you don't agree with? Well, well I I don't want to parse what you said, but I think you're right that there are certainly a lot of opportunities out there yeah. in terms and, of – and I think <laughs> Exactly. And I think, exactly. And I think this is important. An analyst can make a mistake by just looking at the numbers and saying, that's cheap. What you have to do is you got to look behind the numbers, and I'm a little concerned, and that's what I'm going to be doing. When do you yeah. think you're going to get an answer? Obviously, there are a lot of moving parts, yeah. but is probably it, when it's too late, Chris. Is, but like the middle of 2013, six is months, it the next six quarter? months, I'll have probably a good handle about whether this thesis is, is playing out or not. Yeah, I mean, I'd say Windows 8 is pretty crucial. The problem with the Windows or the Microsoft thesis is it's always like one year away, one iteration of Windows away, and people say, "Well, you know, I'm going to hang on through this catalyst." That's and true. It never does it. James Early, what's your question? Chris, I'm going to step back and think more macro for a moment and talk about the dividend tax rate. This is something that affects uh, a lot of people. And, and we're, we're likely, with the fiscal cliff, we're likely to see some sort of a rise, probably more for higher earning people. I'm, I'm doubtful that we'll see the whole dividend tax rate revert to ordinary income rate uh, for everybody. But, but how that hashes out is something that I'm obviously watching as an income investor advisor very closely. Uh, we saw recently Walmart come out and they were going to pay out a dividend the first week of January. They moved it. It's now the last week of December. So obviously that's a, a tax benefit for their shareholders and certainly for the Walton family itself. As we get closer to the end of the year, do you expect to see more companies doing this type of thing? You, I think you talked the other day about uh, about Win Resorts and yeah, sort of the yeah. one time. Do you think we're going to see more of these sort of like one time? I think we will. I think that's a good prediction. Joe Maker, what's your question? Well, I think James's question was great. And to bring it back down for macro a little bit, though, I'm wondering at what point everyone stops being in 
macro armchair economist. Like everyone thinks that they're a, a supreme brilliant thinker on the macro uh, economy. And it's so difficult to think about what the world is doing in a macro sense. Instead, it's a lot easier to look at company level fundamentals. And I just wonder at what point investors stop trading in baskets, risk on, risk off, and go back to looking at companies. Are you, are you talking about individual investors? Or are you talking about people in the financial media? Because if you're hoping for people in the financial media to step back from being armchair economists, I think you're going to be waiting be a for It a could while. take a while. I mean, a few years ago, what happened with the financial crisis is suddenly everyone started saying, oh, well, macro matters. And it does matter, but fundamentals matter too at the company level. And I guess, you know, as a bottom-up guy, I'm most mostly happy that investors aren't paying attention to company fundamentals, but it's fascinating to watch. Let's move on to the Thanksgiving portion of the show. And Ron, <laughs> we'll get to turkeys in a minute, but uh, but uh, one stock you are thankful for, Ron? Uh, this year, Lumber Liquidators has been very, very good to us. Um, we really uh, stocks a, a double for us, um, actually a, a, a triple for some folks. Um, as the the housing um, recovery took hold, yep. stock shot up. We had taken the opportunity early on to, to add to our position when it just got decimated, and I'm, I'm very thankful that we stuck to our guns with that one. I like the accent, too. Thank you very much. I was going to say, the, we saw some more housing data come out this week, and it seems like the, the drumbeat for the housing recovery is here or is getting stronger just seems to be getting louder and louder. Um, is lumber liquidators, is the benefit Mm-hmm. To that already priced in, or do they? Is this a stock that still has some room to run? We well, I'm going to go with both of those okay. things. Um, we we actually lightened up our on our position significantly, took profits at what we think is somewhere near the top, although it's obviously impossible to tell. We've kept a smaller position to hopefully ride out whatever is left. James, a stock that you're thankful for? Chris, I'm going to go, well, let me just phrase it like this. So dis- despite metal shavings in their medicines, despite uh, chemical-laced <laughs> uh, pieces of building uh, shipping pallets, wooden shipping pallets, despite a, a mystery shopper recall scandal, uh, Johnson & Johnson managed to rise <laughs> a little bit more than 10% in the past year, or, so, or just about 10% in the past year. Uh, it's, it's sort of at a, a near-term high, at least. So I'm, I'm thankful for that. This was a stock that, that a lot of people left for dead. The last time Johnson & Johnson reported earnings, we talked about how wonderfully surprising it was that there were no mishaps, that there were no recalls in the yep. quarter, that kind of thing. I don't want to get greedy as a longtime <laughs> shareholder, but is that the kind of thing that potentially we could expect to see more of in the future, meaning more of these quarters where the story is all about the operations and not about, oh, by the way, we had another recall? Well, hopefully, Chris. The new CEO was mildly tainted with, with his own, you know, drug marketing uh, scandal issue. Um, but, 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 you know, you, you wonder how. I mean, they can only screw up so many times, right? And another thing, though, counterbalancing is the consumer product segment is smaller than people think as a percentage of revenue, and it's growing smaller by the year as they, as they get more and more into to medical devices. So that and prescription drugs, the, the prescription sensitivity to the, to the scandals is not that severe. In other words, doctors tend to keep prescribing the medications even despite the consumer issues. So don't hold my breath. That's what I heard you just say. Don't hold your breath. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Joe, a stock you're thankful for? Visa. It's up about 50% over the last year. People keep swiping their debit and credit cards. Very happy with that. And it turns out the Durbin Amendment wasn't the huge sweeping piece of legislation affecting Visa like everyone thought it would be. Uh, When you look a couple of years out and you look at how mobile payment is changing over time with uh, startups like Square and that sort of thing, 
How do you feel about Visa's position within that universe? I think they're in a good position in that they can buy their way into a lot of relationships. They (laughs) own about 10% of Square, and they have a lot of scale and relationships with banks and customers that they can tap. All right. It's the part of the show that Steve Broida has been waiting for. It's time for the (laughs) stocks that are turkeys. Cue the turkey. (laughs) Uh, Ron, what do you got? So many, so little time. How about Dell? Mm. Um, a company, as I've said many times, I've owned for, I don't know, a decade. Yep. And I, I firmly am in the camp of buy and hold, but I think it's a mistake to buy and forget, um, which, frankly, is what I've done. Um, and I think you constantly have to reevaluate uh, your holdings and your thesis and why you own something. And this stock has just gone down and down and down um, as the business changed and the world changed, quite frankly. And it has just been a disaster for my personal portfolio. James? I'm going to go with Intel. This is a stock that was very good to me for, for a while. Uh, analyst uh, Joe Tenebruso recommended it, and it was, it was a great pick for income investor. It's been dropping about 16% year-to-date. The CEO just suddenly bailed uh, recently. We've been hearing this rhetoric about their chips having power parity with, with AMD's chips, and that's been the issue about getting them into mobile devices. The Intel chips just use too much power. But I just got to wonder, when, when's that going to happen? You know, where's the beef here? I don't know, Ron. When you uh, there's the old saying about if uh, everyone in the room sort of took their problems and shoved them into the middle of the room, you you would take your own problems back. Right. Because when you say, so, I mean, you just talked about Dell. Yeah. James just talked about Intel. Wah. I was going to say, do, do you want to <laughs> trade him straight up your shares of Dell for Intel? <laughs> yeah, anytime. <laughs> I was going to say because uh, you know I, I I'm not indifferent to what you're saying, James, but it just seems like that's a a much smaller turkey. Than it's like when you, they ask you what your biggest weakness is on a job interview, and you're just like, I'm just too darn diligent. I work too hard. <laughs> I work too hard. I'm a workaholic. Uh, Joe Mager, what do you got? I'll round out the PC Trinity uh, with Hewlett Packard. These guys oh, got scalped yeah. this week. Uh, PC sales were down again. Uh, every business unit was suffering. The only one that did somewhat okay was software, but within software, they did an $8.8 billion write down on autonomy, which is a wildly overvalued business they bought about a year ago. They're claiming that. There were shenanigans. I don't know which is worse, that it they overpaid so much for autonomy or that it took them almost a year to realize they were cooking the books. Disaster. In any case, it's a total disaster. We've talked about CEOs being on the hot seat. When you look at Meg Whitman heading up Hewlett-Packard, how much time does she have to fix this mess? I don't know. I think she'll end up quitting Really? I would if I were her. I mean, in fairness to her, it's not her fault. Right. She this wasn't there was... at the time of the acquisition, was she? As, no. But she did approve it when I think she was a, a board member. Is that fair to say? Yeah. I mean, yeah. she walked right into this. It was definitely a bad job to take, frankly. Can we give Best Buy an honorable mention for this segment, please? Absolutely. That's a good turkey. I think, yeah, I was going to say, for all the times that we've... Uh, you know what? We should bring in Steve as well, because as we've talked about, and, and as long-time listeners know, Steve Broido, a very uh, very involved investor. A Did very, you say prescient? Um, I don't uh, even know what that means. I, I, I don't either. Steve, I'm just going to be unfair and say you don't get to give the th- stock you're thankful for, but I know you've got at least one turkey that you'd love to rip on, and you've got your finger on the sound effects button. So what what's a, a, a turkey stock for you? Uh, I bought something called Pulse Electronics recently, and I paid this insane dividend, and I was like, this is just great, and it's it's just gone nowhere. <laughs> Nowhere but down. What does yeah. Pulse Electronics do? They do electronics things. <laughs> that Pulse. Like they uh, make parts for uh, electronics, and they just paid it like a 25% dividend. And I'm like, this is great. This is terrific. And it's just, yeah, it's just died. It's terrible. <laughs> Coming up. Very affordable, though, right now. Very affordable. <laughs> Bargain hunters out there. 
Coming up, Black Friday means bargain hunting, so we will look at a few stocks that are trading at bargain prices. That's next. Stay right here. This is Motley Fool Money. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here with Joe Mager, James Early, and Ron Gross. Guys, before we get to the bargain stocks, uh, the Black Friday portion of the show, um, I don't know about you, but uh, Thanksgiving means not only second helpings, but third helpings, fourth helpings for me. But let's just go with second helpings. And in this case, it's a stock that you already own, that you'd love to just double down on, that you're inclined to maybe go back and buy a few more shares. Ron, what do you got? At the risk of Joe wringing my turkey neck, I'm going with Apple. Um, stock's off 20% from its high. Sure, there are some issues. Um, it, it isn't infallible. It isn't, you know, they, they are human, uh, even though it's a company. But I think there's significant upside here at current prices, and I would go back for more. Joe, do you want to wring his neck? I'm tired of always being the bad guy. Here. <laughs> <laughs> James, what do you got? I'm going with waste management. I, I see a 39% upside from here, 4.5% yield while we wait for that to happen. The trash business is, is surprisingly cyclical. The stock hasn't really rallied like I would have hoped, but just like we're not going to stop flushing our toilets, we're not going to stop generating trash. You know, we're, we're always going to do that. So long term, it's a steady business. Is that something that goes hand in hand with uh, housing? I construction mean, is a big, construction generates a lot of trash. And that's why, that's part of the reason it's, it's not been doing as well the past, let's say, four or five years. Joe, second helping? Uh, TD Ameritrade's business I love, and I've talked about it on the show a bunch of times. They keep adding new clients faster than their rivals, which is great, adding new assets. Right now, trading volumes are near historic lows, very low level, same with interest rates. And when both of those come back, profits are going to rise in a big, big way. Uh, I don't know about you guys, um, but Black Friday has never really interested me, the whole facing the crowds and, and, and all that sort of thing. But there are people who love to shop for bargains in the mall. And then there are investors like you guys who love to shop for bargains on Wall Street. So when you look out there, and Ron, you just mentioned, you know, Apple yeah. off twenty percent uh, its high of a couple of months ago. It's not the only one trading at a discount. What do you see out there? Um, a couple of we follow several consumer retail stocks, but I think Aeropostale. I'd love to see people uh, head to the malls, buy a cheap T-shirt, help us out. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Stock looks cheap um, there. And also, a Perryellis I actually like very much. P-E-R-Y um, looks undervalued to me. Aren't you dapper? Yeah. <laughs> well, I didn't say I wear it. <laughs> I said we own it. <laughs> uh, James? I will go. I'll actually second Ron's uh, suggestion of mall-based retailers. Uh, guess I, I feel it's pretty cheap. If you want something a little bit riskier and you're willing to take macro risk, France Telecom has been pounded like 50% in the past, I don't know, a year and a half. Yields 9%. That's after a dividend cut. So, so that's that's a little bit spicier, but but potentially more upside. Does the fact that they cut their dividend make you at all nervous that that may be something that continues into twenty thirteen? Oh yeah, it, it could definitely happen. Um, you know, but it's still not bad to get nine percent return in cash. True enough, Joe Mager. What do you see out there in the bargain world? Well, if you're willing to pay up for your bargains, I still <laughs> I still no, like Amazon. Doesn't work. Uh, Amazon's volumes are up about 40% year over year, and I think the market's really missing a lot of the story here. Uh, revenue isn't growing as fast as volume because the volume, much of it, is coming from growth on third-party sales, which are higher margin for Amazon. And so as a result, you're starting to see gross margins sneak above levels that analysts have been expecting. Uh, balance sheet's in great shape. They're 
incredibly competitive going into the holidays. You look at Amazon.com, they've got eight times the number of televisions carried at Walmart, and that level of selections kind of just ringing true all throughout the site. And that's why you see them growing very, very quickly online and the rest of their competition losing share. Since I gave you the chance uh, to rebut what Ron said, I kind of feel like I need to give Ron a chance to rebut the notion that Amazon is a bargain right now. I, yeah, I love it as a Black Friday play, I think, and that's where, where I'll be shopping, quite frankly. Whether the stock is cheap, I'm going to leave that to Joe. You're a gentleman. <laughs> uh, we will wrap up with a round of undervalued, overvalued, but it's the Thanksgiving edition, so we're not talking stocks here. We're just talking about things in the universe of Thanksgiving, and I'll just start, Ron, with the Macy's Parade. Do you think that's overvalued or undervalued? Well, my wife participated in it back in the day when she was a buyer for Macy's. So really? There's some nostalgia there for us. What did she do? But she was actually, I think she held like did the Snoopy. Did she buy the balloons? She held, I think, if I hope I'm not talking out of school here, I think she she held the Snoopy uh, balloon. What, the, those that's giant me. balloons? Yeah. Wow. She was one of the holders. I don't think she could hold it on her own. Yeah. But yeah, we don't. But we're not uh, watchers of it in our household. But we do have some nostalgia for it. I don't know, Joe. What do you think? I mean, it just it seems a little it seems a little overvalued. But I could be wrong. It just seems like something to fill the time until football comes yeah, on. Kind of boring. Um, James. Um, pecan pie, overvalued or undervalued? You know, I have never, never liked pecan pie. I've never understood Boo. pecan pie. Boo. Just something about it. I, I don't like Hate cheesecake America. either. I don't like cheesecake either. What Nothing to do with Thanksgiving per se. It's just, it's just. What's the point? Thank, Thank you, you, Steve. <laughs> it's delicious. Mm-hmm. I don't think I've tried it actually. <laughs> How can you just sit there in judgment of something you haven't even tried? Maybe I've tried it. It just doesn't look like something. I, I wouldn't like asparagus. I, I've, then I tried it, and I was right. Uh, Joe Mager, the Charlie Brown Thanksgiving TV special, overvalued or undervalued? I actually haven't seen it. Wow. Really? Yeah. So no pecan pie and no Charlie Brown. It's, uh, it's, no, it's definitely it's – it's, it's great. It's a classic. It's, uh, you know it's what? Okay. Here's what I'm saying. It's undervalued. It's undervalued because the, the Christmas Charlie Brown special gets all the attention, and that's, that, that's the one that's overvalued. I'm going to bring in Steve for a second here. Steve, uh, football, watching football on Thanksgiving Day, overvalued or undervalued? Totally overvalued. Just what? not interested. I don't like football. I don't care. Just not my thing. It's never been my thing. Sorry, guys. Sorry, America. You, you want to take the other side of that, Ron? Yes. Yeah, so what else do you do? How long can you talk to your family? You got to put, you put on the, <laughs> An hour? Put on the TV and fall asleep on the couch watching some football. You've raised a very good point. I might be reconsidering <laughs> right now. I was going to say, when you're, when, you know, because you've got a little one, when he gets a little older, uh, that could, that let me take it from someone who has three kids. Every once in a while, just the whole. I think I'm just going to watch a little football. You're going to need that move. You're going to want that. You're going to need the Dallas Cowboys. You're going to need the Dallas Cowboys. You're going to need, dare I say, the Detroit Lions. That's the other thing, though. I mean, to to Steve's point, I mean, some of the football, the quality of football. Yeah, they're not all. <laughs> they're not all stellar. All right, Ron Gross, James Early, Joe Maker, guys. <laughs> Thanks very much for being here. Thank you. Coming up, we'll have an encore presentation of our interview with Nate Silver. Stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. Nate Silver is a statistician, writer, and founder of the New York Times political blog, 538.com. His new book is The Signal and the Noise, Why So Many Predictions Fail, But Some Don't. Nate, thanks for being here. Yeah, thank you, Chris. The rare in-studio guest on Motley Fool Money. <laughs> I love it. Uh, early in your book, you write, we have a problem, we love to make predictions, and we're not very good at it. Why is that? Why Why are we bad at making predictions? Well, I think maybe the first question is, why do we, why do we enjoy <laughs> making <laughs> predictions so much? And I think it has to do with, we have all these things that, uh, uh, that 
are uncertain in our lives, and we feel that if only we could predict them, then we exert more control. Everything over would be our great. Lives. Right, yeah. You know, if you could, of course, you could predict which stocks are going to increase by 50% over the next five years, and you'd, you know, you'd have a very nice life eventually. Um, but the problem is that we aren't as good at using all this information that's out there as we, as we think we are. So what happens in prediction is you have, you have data, information, juxtaposed against, against human judgment, right? And often mm-hmm. things, <laughs> things go wrong when you have kind of hard facts and kind of our human intuitions collide together. Um, and so the book considers cases where um, where there have been people who have achieved success making prediction, but also cases where you see widespread failures, uh, like the failures that led to the financial crisis, for example. You know, the failures of political pundits on <laughs> on TV. Or if you go back and look at uh, at the McLaughlin Group, for example, which they'll have their authors come on at the end of the show. It's the end of yeah. It's at the end of every hour. Yeah, he'll, he'll have go around. Give me a prediction. Go around. Give me a prediction. So actually, I went and looked, and I took a while, right? But I went through the transcripts and and wrote down all their predictions, and then went back and evaluated how they had done. Right, and they got they got exactly half right. Right, so they were <laughs> as good as as flipping a coin and uh, and no better. Um, but you know, part of it is uh, you know there's a demand for Expertise, I think uh, there's a man for someone to come on <laughs> on TV or, or radio and play the play the role of the expert, mm-hmm. um, but that doesn't have very much to do with the actual accuracy of their information. Sometimes it's more like you know how do they sound on on TV or or how crisply presented is their idea, um, and whether it's factual or not is is maybe less important, especially it shouldn't be less important, but often is less emphasized, I think. Um, one of the things that you also write about is that there's no such thing as true objectivity, that 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 these predictions are always going to have some level of bias or subjectivity. Um, is that something you can solve for in polling? Can you solve for bias? Is that where sort of the margin of error comes in when we're looking at polls? Well, so there, you know, there are some polls that can that can poll a hundred thousand people, but they're still kind of aiming at the wrong aiming at the wrong target, where they have bad algorithms that they're using. Or so, for example, there are polls that don't call people who have cell phones, which is now about a third of the American population, and people who who rely uh, who rely on their cell, excuse me who people who uh, who only have cell phones and don't have landlines, mm-hmm. right? Um, and those people tend to be younger, more urban, more democratic-leaning, more minorities. They have different characteristics uh, that make them vote <laughs> differently. And if you exclude that one-third of the population, then you could survey the other uh, couple hundred million Americans, right, who do have landlines, and you still would have a, a biased sample in that respect. So people think, oh, you just kind of collect more and more data and more and more information and you'll get better and better. But you reach um, a limit that is far, far short of perfection if you're, if you're doing uh, the wrong process. And that's often what you see, not just in polling, but in a lot of types of prediction where uh, people keep collecting more and more information. But if you, have a, if you have a bad model, if you give a computer program bad instructions, you wind up with, with garbage in, garbage out. And computers can't spin, <laughs> can't spin uh, straw into, into gold. You say that weather forecasters and gamblers are success stories when it comes to predictions. Yes. How, how so? Uh, so, well, the difference with weather forecasters and gamblers is that they're both used to thinking in terms of probabilities. Um, so you see on the Weather Channel that there's a, a 20% chance of rain, for example. Um, some people get very frustrated with that because they're like, well, why can't these guys tell me exactly what's 
going to happen. And the reason is that, well, they, they, they can't, but neither can anyone else, and they know they can't, and that helps to make them better. Um, weather forecasts, they, they're considered a joke by some people, and that used to be kind of true, that really they would miss the high temperature by an average of 7 degrees, right, a couple days in advance. But now that error has been cut in half, and for something like hurricanes, where if you have a hurricane sitting right now in the Gulf of Mexico three days before before landfall, they can pinpoint on average the landfall location 72 hours in advance by about 100 miles, um, which means you can evacuate, say, the southern tip of Alabama or Mississippi um, or a certain part of Florida, not with guaranteed success, but where it's prudent and saves lives to evacuate. Um, 20 or 25 years ago, you couldn't do that at all, where literally if you had a hurricane in the Gulf of Mexico, it was equally likely as far as, as, far as they knew to hit Tallahassee, Florida, and Houston, Texas. So the whole, the whole kind of crescent of the Gulf Coast was in play. So that's a, a, a case where there have been very tangible, practical improvements, and it's because the weather forecasters knew that if we can think probabilistically and say, here's what we know and here's what we don't, despite having more and more powerful computers, then you can start to make progress. We're trying to close that gap between what we think we know and what we, and what we really know. If you can work on both ends of that, and the book tries that, it says, well, first of all, let's, let's admit that some things are going to be very hard to predict. Predicting the direction of the American economy more than a couple months in advance is intrinsically a very hard problem. On the other hand, we can, uh, we can do some things to be more, more data-driven and, and make us better and smarter. And so we up our skill level at the same time. We're a little bit more humble and modest about what we're likely to accomplish realistically. You're listening to Motley Fool Money, talking with Nate Silver. His new book is The Signal and the Noise, Why So Many Predictions Fail, But Some Don't. Uh, let's stick with the economy, because uh, the conventional wisdom is that the stock market is a leading indicator. And mm-hmm. right now, we're at about a four-year high for the stock market. Does that, in your mind, predict uh, a faster recovery for the economy overall? So what's interesting is that um, <clears throat> I think investors and kind of economists have different biases. So I, I've gone back and looked at cases where you had... So right now, for example, the forecasts of, of GDP are are quite bearish, where people still think it's going to chug along at, at 1.8% or 2.1%. Um, so it's been rare historically when you had a very bullish market and a bearish GDP forecast. And what happens is actually um, you do tend to beat the GDP forecast when when the market's going up as much as it has. Um, investors seem to be... I, I think one good thing about about investors is that they don't have to worry about being uh, politically correct. Whereas if you're, if you're making a prediction where you have reputation on the line more than money, your incentives are different, you might not want to stick out too much, right? It might be easier to say, well, the economy has been been bad for a long time, so I can stay more in consensus by saying it's going to continue to be to be bad, right? Um, and of course, investors have their own <laughs> issues with with kind of believing maybe too much in the sentiment sometimes. Um, but you know, there is a lot of of power in having a lot of independent information coming together. The the kind of ninety percent of the time, I say that markets are functioning <laughs> are functioning well. They can be a beautiful thing, and of course, there are there's either ten percent of the time where you have where you have bubbles and <laughs> and you have panics and you have uh, you know kind of collectively very irrational behavior. But um, but taken on the whole, there there is macroeconomic information as far as as I've found in 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 the S and P five hundred in the Dow. Coming up, more with Nate Silver. Stay right here. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money, talking with Nate Silver, author of the new book, The Signal and the Noise. Why do you think 
more people didn't predict uh, the financial crisis that we saw in 2008? Why didn't more people see that coming? Well, part of it is you had a number of, of dominoes unfolding, and I think this is almost kind of more of the kind of Taleb Black Swan type argument, right? Um, but where I think people don't realize how the risks in different parts of the economy are, are correlated with one another. So you think, okay, so this is the whole problem behind, for example, the rating agencies thought, well, we're going to take all these different all these different uh, mortgages and bundle them together and repackage them. And, you know, by the miracle diversification, we'll take a bunch of <laughs> kind of B, B plus, uh, you know, B rated crap. And they'll be triple A. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Because um, they assume that what happens to like a carpenter in Cleveland and a dentist in Denver are independent from one another. Right. But of course, if you have a a housing bubble that bursts and everyone is facing the same conditions, then the risks are hugely correlated. And so the whole structure blows up and they defaulted at rates that were literally hundreds of times what um, what was expected. And then you further leverage that with the fact that in addition to just having, you know, the actual effects of people um, having uh, mortgages underwater itself, I mean, just the sheer volume of, of betting, side betting on the housing market was was astounding. For every actual dollar that exchanged hands with someone buying or selling a home, there were about $50 worth of of side bets. And so instead of being a, a severe but localized problem, it became a, a global problem. Um, the title of your book is The Signal and the Noise. When it comes to the stock market, what do you think is the noise that the average investor would be wise to just tune out? Well, I think a lot of the, the day-to-day fluctuations, right, where if you look at, you know, if you look at the stock market over intervals of, of 10 years or <laughs> or 15 or 20 years, it does display certain types of predictable behavior, right? Where if the P.E. ratios get get too high, it's been a pretty reliable predictor of a market that will achieve below average growth or even maybe a favorite to decline um, over over the long term. Um, but over the short run, it's, <laughs> it's a bit different where I think, you know, when Alan Greenspan described the market as being irrationally exuberant, right? Um, if you had invested your money at that time and had been uh, had the uh, the hindsight or the foresight to sell right at the peak of the Nasdaq bubble, you would still have made <laughs> three or four times your money your money back. Um, and so, you know, I, in the book, I, I quote from uh, the economist Fisher Black, and that's kind of where my ninety percent, ten percent conception comes in. Because normally, it's it's a healthy strategy in life to pay some attention to what your neighbors are doing. Um, and to and to say, well, you know, it's probably not the case that if everyone else thinks this is a good idea, that uh, that my theory is 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 better than theirs, right? And if everyone else thinks these these CDOs are safe, then you know, who am I to say to say differently? Um, but there is that ten percent of the time where that herd mentality kind of leads us off a cliff, and I think it's just kind of um, the price that that we pay for <laughs> for having markets where where people are reacting to one. Another right, um, you know the the the, the benefits to agree information are are sometimes compromised. People lose their their independence, and and one thing you worry about a little bit now, right, is kind of uh, is that people become so efficient. Some of the the banks at kind of developing their algorithms that so and so forth that there's kind of no more almost species diversity <laughs> as much, right? And so everyone's kind of doing the same thing. Um, and if one uh, if one Fun goes down, then a whole bunch might as well. So it's a little bit, it's a little bit frightening. It's also a little bit frightening, by the way, just how many trades are being <laughs> are being made. Right? There's yeah. some notion that, um, well, the markets are becoming more 
efficient. Well, if the market's efficient, then you wouldn't have very much reason to trade. Um, but the volume, just the volume of, of shares that change hands is increasing um, very, very quickly. So now the average share of common stock is traded once every every six months, and it was once every six years, uh, once every six years back in the 50s and 60s. So it really has become an investment now where um, where you buy stocks to trade them and not to hold them, and that and that changes the climate, I think, quite, quite a bit. I was going to say, it seems like with so much more information available to so many more investors, individual investors, mm-hmm. and of course, institutional investors, fund managers, etc., um, it would seem like in some ways, it's harder than ever for an investor to have any kind of edge in terms of predicting where a stock price is going to go. Well, I th- maybe that's true, but it makes it easier for people to think they have <laughs> an edge, right? Um, so, in in the book, and this is you know going to come from a different kind of historical era, but I talk about what happened when you had the the printing press invented, and all of a sudden. There were books when there weren't really any books before, and people had a lot more information, exponentially more than they had a generation earlier. Um, and the first thing that people did is uh, kind of read books that proselytized different religious ideas. And so you had, you know, hundreds of years of holy war <laughs> in Europe, right? Where it's like, well, now there's way more information than I can than I can get a handle on myself. So I have to pick and choose what I read. And people, I think, forget that you know the subset of information that you come across is not the only information in the world, but you become devoted into it and believe deeply into it. And, and that's kind of why you have people willing to make so many bets, I think, in, in the market, and the volumes are increasing so much, is that is people kind of cherry-pick, whether consciously or not, what information they look at, and they assume that because they're in possession of it, because they've read it, that this information is especially worthwhile, and often, and often it's not. So you're saying the specious and incorrect information that's available, widely available on the internet today, <laughs> that was going on in Gutenberg's time as well. Just in you yeah, know. you see this, you see this precedent where uh, where look, you know, you get people eventually get better at processing information, right? But the volume of information we have in in uh, in the world today is is astounding, right? Um, where we're generating, I don't know the figure offhand, but it's quintillions of bytes of data <laughs> each day, right? Where it would take, you know. All of humanity, uh, you know, all, all seven billion people, uh, uh, hundreds of lifetimes to go to go through it, right? And so there's kind of this uh, the signal to noise ratio, I would say you call it, is is becoming is waning because you have more information <laughs> than you have useful information. A lot of it's just kind of crap and kind of should go in your in your spam folder, so to speak. Uh, but people people think that every every you know you look at. CNBC or Bloomberg, or you see all this data and you think, oh, there must be some some real insight there. And, you know, maybe there is a little bit, but you have to sort through an awful lot of, of, uh, of hay to find that, that needle that might give you some extra advantage. You're listening to Motley Fool Money, talking with Nate Silver. His new book is The Signal and the Noise, Why So Many Predictions Fail, But Some Don't. Uh, you are perhaps best known for your political forecasts and your, uh, your blog, 538.com. What is the toughest part of political forecasting? Um, I th- well, it's tough with presidential elections because you don't have very much of a case history, really, where we've had – I think this is uh, the 17th election since World War II. Um, and, you know, and if you have a complex phenomenon where a lot of things factor into how people, people vote, um, the economy and wartime, peacetime and incumbency and so forth – 
Um, what you ideally want for Cisco models to have hundreds of cases to test it upon, right? Then you can say um, with some with some subtlety, for example, which economic variables matter more to people? Is it the trajectory at the end of the fourth year of a president's term, or over over the whole four year term, right? And is it is it jobs or income or GDP or or the stock market or or what else, right? But we don't have anywhere near enough data to to test those assumptions for presidential elections and things are also always always changing too and so you you frankly have to make some uh, some educated guesses you have to say okay here's what I think is the strongest theoretical justification for how voters might behave but you can't be as as purely empirical about it as you can in baseball where you have 700 players playing a season every year right then it is kind of the pure edge so I'm just going to kind of fit a statistical model and, and then take it off the shelf and use it to make predictions and you're fine. But in, in presidential elections, if you're not careful, uh, you can get yourself in, in a lot of trouble. You're listening to Motley Fool Money, talking with Nate Silver. His new book is The Signal and the Noise, Why So Many Predictions Fail, But Some Don't. I can't let you leave without asking you a couple <laughs> questions about baseball because yeah. uh, once upon a time you developed a system for forecasting baseball performance. Uh, you sold it to Baseball Prospectus. Um, first question is, what do you think of Moneyball? Uh, the book or the well, I, well you the know, book I, or the movie? I mean, I'm just I'm just curious because this is, uh, you know, Billy Bean as much as anyone sort of is is the uh, the the face, at least the Hollywood face of sort of this uh, sabermetrics uh, movement, and I'm just curious what your reaction was. So I kind of live, I used to work for a company called uh, called Baseball Prospectus and we were doing the, the Bill James stuff and the and the Moneyball stuff. And so 10 years ago, I remember going to the uh, to the winter meetings in, in New Orleans and it was like a scene just out of of Michael Lewis's book where you had kind of the the nerds on the one side of, <laughs> of the lobby and the jocks on the other. They were, conveniently, the jocks occupied the, the hotel bar and were drinking a lot of whiskey, right? Uh, and the nerds were kind of circling around trying to hand them, like, resumes and, and pronounce of, of PowerPoints, right? But there was a lot of tension because people thought that they were trying to take one another's, one another's jobs. Um, but now, it's, there's, that's just not the case at all, where these teams have figured out the one thing about baseball is that is that you have a a scoreboard right where you know how well you did at the end of the day. Um, you start to get to the long run fairly quickly. It takes 162 games, but um, but so you can evaluate your decision making processes, what work and what don't, uh, pretty fast and get better at it. Scouts and and stat geeks have a lot more in common than than you might realize because they both have that skill to say here here is that signal from all the noise <laughs> that I perceive and here's what actually here's what actually matters and, and that skill is is quite rare. In 2009, Time magazine named Nate Silver one of the world's 100 most influential people. His new book is The Signal and the Noise: Why So Many Predictions Fail But Some Don't. Nate, thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thank you. That's all for this week's Motley Fool Money. We'll see you next week. 